Paul Mills with the Stub Stomp, the theme tune for his guitar-picking alter ego, Curly Boy Stubbs. Paul Mills has been working in music for over 45 years now as a musician and arranger and the producer and engineer of over 200 folk music recordings, including albums by Stan Rogers, Sharon Lois and Bram, Terry Kelly, Ron Hines and John Allen Cameron. Paul Mills was appointed to the Order of Canada in June of 2017 and he's our special guest in the studio today. It's great to have you join us, Paul. Oh, Jim, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for asking. You know, when I look back at your career, it, it blows my mind <laughs> to think how much you've been involved in. The interesting thing is that for a lot of that time, I think, and certainly until, what, the mid-90s, you were actually also working at the CBC? Yes, I was. I started uh, working at CBC in 1972 as a music producer. And... Uh, and I went on to produce drama, and then I ended up in management, which I hated, so I quit. <laughs> <laughs> and you had started producing, I'm assuming, during the time you were actually at the CBC oh, as yes. well, because yes. I think 72 was when you graduated from Western in London. Yeah, I was, I was actually, uh, I graduated as a chemical engineer in 1968, and I started working as an engineer for Procter & Gamble, and I didn't enjoy it at all. So I went back to school, and uh, it uh, ended up... Uh, back at Western in postgrad, and, um, and it was during the postgrad years that the London music scene was really starting to pop. Uh, Smales Pace Coffee House was happening, and, uh, and the Hub Coffee House at Western and so on, and that's when I really started to get into music, and I decided that my ideal career would be a music producer, and so I became one. <laughs> so did you go back to school to train in audio engineering, or did, was that basically no, self-taught? It was self-taught. I, I, I enrolled in a PhD program in chemical engineering thinking I would teach because I enjoyed university life. But what I really enjoyed was music, and that's when I discovered it. Now, you're not from a musical family, is, is that right? No, no, interestingly, I'm not. My mother was a music fan, and she was my my big supporter, but there wasn't a lot of music in the house. My brother didn't play music or anything. So it was really through uh, friends that I uh, got into uh, music big time. I always like those first stories because I always like to say, well, tell us about your first guitar. When did you first pick a guitar up? I got a guitar for my uh, 13th birthday. Uh, my parents knew that I had a, I wanted a guitar. I'd been playing ukulele and uh, so they got me a guitar and, uh, and it went on from there. And so you, you taught yourself, or yep. did you take lessons no, at the taught, start? No, I taught myself. Because you're a pretty fine player, I have to be Thank honest. You. <laughs> that, you know, I actually got to know you more th 
through Curly Boy Stubbs because right. I, I picked up some of your playing at, at Home County. Right. It took me a little while to realize that Paul Mills, the producer, was actually still Curly Boy Stubbs. Now, there's an interesting Curly Boy Stubbs story, right? Tell us how that came about because, well, I think explain why you needed the alter ego and, yeah. and how that actually happened. Well, actually, I was at CBC. Uh, it was 1974, I believe. I was uh, developing a, 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 folk, a network folk music program called Touch the Earth. And we, it was just in the planning stages. And I needed, I needed material. I needed uh, content. So I got a, a telex. You remember them? I got a telex from a producer in Winnipeg who said, there's a guy out here starting a folk festival. And he gave me, he told me the lineup, and I thought, wow, perfect. So I flew to Winnipeg, and I met with Mitch Podolik, who was starting the festival. And I negotiated broadcast rights. And uh, after all that was said and done, uh, we got back to his house, and he's a fine banjo player. And I picked up a guitar, and we started to jam. And he said, oh, you're a good player. He says, you'll have to do a workshop at the festival. I said, no, 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 that would not look right. I'm there for CBC. Let's not mix things up. Okay, so... I go back home. Two weeks later, he calls me up. He says, okay, you're going to play a workshop at the festival. You're going to be doing a workshop with John Hammond Jr. And your name will be Curly Boy Stubbs, all right? <laughs> so I said, okay, Mitch. And uh, so that happened. And then a, a couple of months later, I was, I was in the studio working with Stan Rogers on his first album. And Stan caught wind of this Curly Boy story. And he said, that's perfect. The credit on the album will be Paul Mills, producer, and Curly Boy Stubbs on guitar. And from there, it stuck. <laughs> well, it, it actually is a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful moniker, it really is, for, <laughs> for a musician. And actually, I, I kind of like that idea that, you know, you have the alter ego when you get up and play. Is it mostly when you play, do, do you like to be Curly Boy Stubbs, or do you often go up and play as Paul Mills? I, when I play live, I play as Paul Mills, but the, the kind of running gag has been the album credits. Right. Uh, when, when, there's a, when I play guitar on somebody's album, uh, the credit will be Curly Boy Stubbs. Now, Curly Boy Stubbs, the Stub Stump that we just listened mm -hmm. to, was actually on your album from 2006. Yes. The Other Side of the Glass, which interestingly, for a man who's produced... 200 albums for other people is the only one that is your album alone is that right that's correct yeah i did uh, i did an album with my son trevor uh, last fall but other than that no that's the only one you've now retired from producing yes. we're actually going to focus on the producing for the rest of the mm -hmm. the time we're together do you think you might make another album now and and maybe produce that or is it do you think those days are are, are gone i too? don't know i may I mean, it's been in my mind to, uh, I've, I've been getting back into playing live a little more and, and really enjoying that. And it's crossed my mind that maybe I should sit down and make an album. But I'll have to go to somebody else's studio because I've dismantled my studio. Uh, oh, you've dismantled it yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's Millstream, right? The Millstream, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, it's great when I was checking out your website online, it's great to actually be able to, to, to look behind the scenes because it's nice when you're actually mm -hmm. looking at a, a website for a studio to to get a descriptions of all of the different yeah. equipment yeah. and everything and obviously it took some time to put that together yeah i started building the i quit the cbc job in 1996 and i started to put together my home studio around that time and I, it evolved over the years um and it became a nice little joint actually <laughs> so you're very pleased with it yes Let's start to talk about the producing. We're going to get back to some music mm -hmm. just now. Mm -hmm. Stan Rogers, yes. um, 
I mean, a, a folk icon uh, gone far, far too soon. Indeed. Uh, I didn't realize that when I was preparing for this interview, I didn't realize you actually produced all but one of Stan's albums. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we did five albums together. And then after his uh, departure, we uh, put out a, a couple of other albums uh, of, of unreleased material and so on. So, yeah. We, we've selected music to play today. And uh, when we were setting this up, I said, well, you know, who do you want to play? Mm -hmm. uh, we have some Stan Rogers lined up. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about when you first met Stan. I first met him um, in London, Ontario. I was going to uh, school. I was in grad school at that point. And uh, he was, uh, I was playing the university coffee house, The Hub, with a woman named Mary McCarthy, and or Mary Chapman, as she was then known. We were the headline act, and Stan was the opening act. And I was backstage tuning, and my wife Bev came back and said, you got to come out and hear this guy. So I came out, and we listened to Stan with that voice. That and voice is remarkable. I mean, it is. Every, yeah. it's, it's that voice that you instantly know it's Stan Rogers, that incredibly warm baritone. Yeah, incredible, indeed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we uh, we became friends that night. We ended up back at Mary's house jamming until the sun came up, and uh, and uh, we became friends, and he was a frequent visitor. And in fact, he, he fell in love with London and the music scene, so he moved to London, and he lived there for a couple of years. So we have some Stan Rogers lined up. What we're going to listen to? This is from uh, the first album that we did together. It's called Make and Break Harbor. Uh, the first album we did was, uh, the, the album was called Fogarty's Cove, and it was largely music based on the East Coast. Now, Stan is not from the Maritimes, but his parents are, and he spent all, pretty well all of his childhood summers in Nova Scotia, and he always said that he, in his heart, he felt that he was a Maritimer, and so this album was a good coming out album for him. One of his aunts said, why don't you write some songs about wh where your parents come from, and so he did. And that's what this album is about, and Make and Break Harbor is from that album. You know, I did not realize until today that he actually wasn't from the Maritimes. I just no. kind of assumed that that was the case. Born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> this is Stan Rogers with Make and Break Harbor from the 1976 album Fogarty's Cove. And you're listening to Folk Roots Radio, and I'm Jan Hall. How still lies the bay in the light western airs Which blow from the crimson horizon Once more we tack home with a dry empty hole Saving gas with the breezes so fair She's a kindly Cape Islander but still sound, but so lost in the long lighter shadow. Make and break and make do, but the fish are so few that she won't be replaced should she founder. Now it's so hard to not think of before the big war. When the cod went so cheap, but so plenty Foreign trawlers go by now with long-seeing eyes Taking all where we seldom take any And the young folk don't stay with the fish 
fisherman's way Long ago they all moved to the cities And the ones left behind old and tired and blind Have stirred up the bay, leaving lobster traps smashed on the bottom. Can they think it don't pay to respect the old ways that make and break men have not forgotten? For we still keep our time to the turn of the tide, and this boat. That I built with my father Still lifts to the sky The one longer and I Still talk like old friends On the water In make and break harbor The boats are so few Too many are pulled up and rotten And empty old nets hung to dry Are blown away, lost and forgotten In make and break harbor The boats are so few Too many are pulled up and rotten Most houses stand empty Old nets hung to dry are blown away, lost and forgotten.
That's John Allen Cameron with Butterfingers Medley from the 1979 Freeborn Man album, which is another album you produced, wasn't it, Paul? Yes, it was. It was uh, it was such fun working with John Allen. We actually recorded the bulk of it uh, in uh, Halifax at a studio there because he was uh, he was living there at the time, I believe. And uh, and then we finished it up uh, at a studio in London, the same studio that I recorded Stan Rogers, uh, Springfield Sound. So it's uh, yeah, and he he was a pleasure to work with, John Allen. And I like to call him the fastest thumb in the East because he played that twelve string guitar with his thumb pick all downstrokes. Huh. Amazing playing those tunes. Now, before that, we had Stan Rogers and Make and Break Harbor, and when we were listening to to that song, you mentioned that actually David Woodhead was playing bass on that song, but also lap steel. Also lap steel, yeah. Yeah. David's one of the finest musicians I've ever worked with. Uh, He's an amazing player, not only on bass, uh, but also things like lap steel, ukulele, mandolin, you name it. So getting started as a producer, was that a much of a shift for you? Not really. No, I felt much more at home doing that than I than I did doing chemical engineering. When I joined the CBC in 1972, I managed to bluff my way in as a music producer, and but I was pretty uh, wet behind the ears at that point. And, uh, and so it was a little bit of baptism by fire. I was thrown into the studio producing incredible uh, artists, and I, I, had, I had a couple of uh, producers there who kind of mentored me a little bit. But I learned on the job at CBC, and it was uh, it was quite something. I remember one of the earliest projects I did. In fact, the very first album I ever produced was for CBC Radio, and it was a sixteen-piece jazz band, Nimmons and Nine Plus Six, with Oscar Peterson on piano. And that was talk about baptism by fire. There it is, you know. But it worked out well, and uh, and so in the ten years that I produced music for CBC, I learned I learned my craft. Because you were based in the drama department at CBC, weren't you? Uh, later. In uh, later, okay. Yeah, during the 70s, I was in what they then called the variety department, which was the, the department that produced popular music. And uh, I became a drama producer in 1983. So when you were producing people like Stan in the early days and then John Allen Cameron, which studios did you go to to do those? Both of those albums were uh, produced either entirely or in part at a studio just outside of London, Ontario, called Springfield Sound. It's no longer there. It's now a private residence. But uh, I found out about that studio through a friend of mine, and we ended up uh, going there and loved it. We actually lived at the uh, facility. There was bedrooms downstairs, and we lived there for a week or so while we made the albums. So I guess a lot of the connections you made through the the coffeehouse circuit and people Mm -hmm. you started to meet in the folk scene, because... The folk scene in those days must have, you know, be getting pretty exciting. I mean, it, you know, obviously we were talking the 70s, not the 60s, but yeah. the coffeehouse scene was really starting to build, wasn't it? It was. You know, it was uh, It was interesting. Um, during the uh, 60s, of course, folk music was, in the early 60s, it was on top. It was on mainstream radio and all the rest of it. And that kind of petered out a little bit. But it experienced a resurgence in the early 70s. And it was during that time that a lot of the uh, folk festivals in Canada sprouted up. Uh, up until then, there was like the Mariposa Festival, and that was about it. But during the 70s, we got all those Western festivals, you know, Winnipeg, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, so on. Uh, the Home County Festival in London in 1974, and so on. So it's um, it was an interesting time, and that's when we had uh, the network folk music program, Touch the Earth, which Sylvia Tyson hosted 
Uh, it went, we went on the air with that in 1975, and we're on for five and a half years. I like to think that it was influential in some ways in terms of getting folk music uh, across the country. That probably was a really good leg up, wasn't it, to 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 get you started in the the you know as a producer? Oh, absolutely. It was uh, well, it was a continuation of my producing work for CBC, but it got me across the country, and I got to meet a lot of people. Yeah, it was an important uh, phase in my in my career, I guess, uh, making contacts and all of that. We're going to go back to the music with another Stan Rogers song. Now, <clears throat> interestingly, this is <clears throat> Stan Rogers. It's actually an album that was put out after he passed. And, and you know, the whole story of, of how Stan died is just mm. so tragic. Obviously, somebody that, that knew him well at that point, it must have been a, a complete shock to, to find out what happened. It was terrible. Um, we had started the album in the, I believe it was in the fall of 1982. And uh, it was an album um, of songs that he uh, wrote about Ontario. The first album was mostly about the East Coast. Uh, the album Northwest Passage was mostly about the West. So he, he actually decided to sit down and write songs about the province that he was born and raised in, Ontario. And he told me at the time he was filling the gap in the map. <laughs> and uh, so that was the concept for the album. And we started recording it and we finished all of the recording in the spring of 1983. Then he went off on tour and he was in uh, at the Kerrville festival in, in Texas, and it was when he was on his way home from that, that he was in that terrible plane fire. Uh, the plane landed in Cincinnati and burst into flames, and he didn't make it. That night that we found out about that was one of the worst days of my life. He was he was my best friend at the time. It's yeah. interesting, because, you know, when you, you look back, it's inevitable, because, we, you know, we're talking 1983, to wonder what he would have achieved mm. had, he, you know, that not happened. Yeah. No, the mind boggles. He was one of the best songwriters, if not the best songwriter I've ever worked with. And at that point in his life, at 33 years of age, he had written this body of work, which stands the test of time today. And it's still there and still relevant and still listened to. Imagine what would have happened if he had lived another 30 or 40 years. You know, really. Well, the, the, I think the thing about Stan Rogers' song is that they're they're complete, you know, that mm. they, you never feel like you're listening to a, a half-finished no. Stan Rogers song. I mean, isn't that one of the, the keys to, a, you know, to a really gifted songwriter? I think so. And, and he's also, he's also a, a brilliant writer in terms of, there's that old saying that says, don't tell me, show me. So if you listen to his songs, there are images in the lyrics. He paints pictures with his words. And that's what makes them so compelling. You picked a track from the From Freshwater album. Mm -hmm. What are we going to listen to? We're going to listen to White Squall, which is, uh, which is a, a song about uh, a, sh a ship running into trouble you know, on the Great Lakes, where storms can, can uh, blow up uh, rather quickly and waves can be huge. It's a, it's a beautifully written song about this tragedy. This is Stan Rogers with White Squall from the album From Freshwater. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio, and I'm Jan Hall. Now 
Now it's just my luck to have the watch with nothing left to do. Watch the deadly waters glide as we roll north to the Sioux. Wonder when they'll turn again and pitch us to the rail. We'll lock one more youngster in the gale. The kid was so damn eager. It was all so big and new. You never had to tell him twice or find him work to do. Evenings on the mess deck, he was always first to sing. He'd show us pictures of the girl he'd read in spring. But I told that kid a hundred times, don't take the lakes for granted. They go from calm to a hundred knots, so fast they seem enchanted. But tonight, some red-eyed wire-to girl lies staring at the wall. And her lover's gone into a white Now it's a thing that us old-timers know In the sultry summer calm There comes a glow from nowhere And it goes off like a bomb And a fifteen-thousand-tonner Can be thrown upon her beam While the gale takes all before it with a scream The kid was on the hatches Lying staring at the sky From where I stood I swear I could see tears fall from his eyes So I hadn't the heart to tell him that he should be on a line Even on a night so warm and kind But I told that kid a hundred times Don't take the lakes for granted They go from calm to a hundred knots So fast they seem enchanted But tonight some red-eyed wireton girl Lies staring at the wall And her lover's gone into a white squall When it struck, he sat up with a start I roared to him, get down But for all that he could hear I could as well not make a sound So I clung there to the stanchions And I felt my face go pale As he crawled hand over hand along the rail Now I could feel her healing over With the fury of the blow I watched the rail go under, then so terrible and slow. Then, like some great dog, she shook herself and roared upright again. Far over side, I heard him calling. But I told that kid a hundred times, don't take the licks for granted. They go from calm to a hundred knots, so fast they seem enchanted. But tonight some red-eyed wireton girl lies staring at the wall And her lover's gone into white squall So it's just my luck to have the watch with nothing left to do 
Watch the deadly waters glide as we roll north to the sea. Wonder when they'll turn again and pitch us to the rail. And whirl off one more youngster in the gale. And I tell these kids a hundred times, don't take the lakes for granted. They go from calm to a hundred knots, so fast they seem enchanted. But tonight, some red-eyed, wired and girl, I staring at the wall. And her lover's gone into a white squall. That's Dan Rogers with White Squall from the 1983 album from Freshwater. Paul Mills is our special guest in the Folk Roots Radio studio today. We're chatting about his career in music. 45 years, 200 mm-hmm. albums, <laughs> and nearly every Stan Rogers album. Yeah, all but one. Yeah, uh, yeah we had a good run for sure. And uh, this was the last album that we did together. Uh, as I said, we finished recording it in the spring of 83, and it was uh, June the 2nd, 1983, that he died. We actually started mixing this album the day after his funeral. That was tough. Now, you mentioned that when you were in the studio as well, I mean, there's an orchestration <clears throat> on, yeah, on this album. This album uh, was actually a, co- a co-production with CBC. They provided the funding for it. And uh, Stan and I decided to uh, take advantage of that and orchestrate a number of the songs on the album. So we actually had uh, strings and horns and so on. Um, yeah, Stan actually uh, did one of the arrangements. And uh, his voice is so strong and so huge that it, it works well with an orchestrated arrangement. It really does. A lot of the folk purists uh, didn't like this, of course, uh, but we liked it. And, uh, and it still stands today, I think, is a very good album, if I do say so. Was it the album produced at the CBC or in it a, was. a private studio? Well, it was. Uh, the tracks were done at Grant Avenue Studios in Hamilton, which was Danny Lenoir's, Daniel Lenoir, excuse me, uh, studio. Uh, but it was finished and uh, mixed at the uh, CBC studio in Toronto. Yeah. And the orchestration was that at the, at that the was, C- CBC? That yeah. was at the CBC. Yeah. Yeah, we had an 18 piece string section, a couple of French horns. It was great. And you were mentioning while we were listening to to that track, I think you said there were there was ten different guitar tracks on there. I, I think if my if my memory serves me, there's ten guitar tracks on that. Uh, so it's a it's a big uh, orchestration of guitars in the back, and I, I think it sounds great. So t- take us through how you would actually you know put a uh, a song like that together. It's always fascinates me when you have so many moving mm. pieces you know especially because you know on one side you've got people say well you know live off the floor is best and yeah. then you've got this other situation where you know tracks get built in a lot of the albums in fact most of the albums that I've, I've produced i'd like to i like to do the vocals separately because i like to pay attention and make sure those vocals are the best they can possibly be now with some artists they have to play and sing together and that's fine and we do that live off the floor but in Stan's case, we did the vocals separately pretty much all the time. And uh, it allowed us to really get the best possible sound and the best possible performance uh, of each song that way. You know, one of the things I've noticed in just the time of preparing for for this conversation and also mm. listening to the music, it, 
you do have a wonderful sound to the music that you produce. I love Thank the you. way that the instruments get space to breathe and mm. and you can feel the vocal just floating over the top. There must be quite an art to trying to to get that to happen, is it? Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's an art or uh, it's it's something. One of my rules is I want to understand every single word of the lyric. The lyric is is as important a part of the song as the melody and the rhythm. So you'll hear on a lot of all of my productions that the vocal is very much out front. And in terms of the arrangements, I like to ensure that the arrangement is true to the original player's style. Like when you hear these albums and you, and then you go to a club and hear the performer, you're going to hear them either alone or maybe with a bass player. And I've heard so many albums where I listen to the, the artist's album and then I hear them live and it doesn't sound anything like them, like right, the album. completely different, you know? yeah. But I, I, I like to try to stay true to the original sound and feel of the artist. So that's that. those are the things I strive for in, in uh, producing and coming up with instrumentation and arrangements and so on. Did the fact that Stan was, I would have said, fairly prolific as a, mm -hmm. as a songwriter, the fact that he was going in and out of the studio working on different albums, did that change the way that he performed? I always wonder whether how much being in the recorded environment actually changes the, the performance of the artist and, and helps them develop. I don't know about that or, or whether the reverse is the case. Okay. Where, uh, I mean, Stan was a, a brilliant live performer. He gave it his all every time he went on stage. And uh, when he came into the studio, he brought a lot of that spirit with him. Yeah. Certainly, great conversation. Let's get back to the music. We're going to change horses completely <laughs> because yes. we're going to play Sharon, Lois, and Bram. Yep. Just now. Tell us a little bit about working with them. Well, I started working with them in the early 80s. They had already done a couple of albums with a producer named Bill Usher, and they wanted to uh, uh, work with uh, another producer, and uh, they actually assigned me to produce an album with Eric Nagler, who was a, a guy who was on their, on their uh, television program and a children's entertainer. And I found out later that that was my audition. And they liked what I did with Eric, so they hired me to be their producer. And I ended up doing uh, a number of albums with them over about a 20-year period. And this uh, particular song is from, I think, the second or third album I did with them. The album was called Happy Birthday. And it was all songs about uh, birthdays and all that. Sharon Lawson Bram were a delight to work with, uh, probably Canada's best-known children's entertainers. The thing that I liked about working with them is that they treated the music seriously. A lot of kids' music is produced like, oh, it's just for kids, you know, so the care, the care is not taken. With their albums, care is taken. We hired the best musicians, the best arrangers. We always had something in every album with them that the parents would enjoy. Uh, and this song here, the Unbirthday song, is an example of that, I think. Well, you know, the interesting thing about children's entertainers is that they're usually fine musicians at the same time. I mm -hmm. mean, Fred Penner would be a classic example Indeed. of, of yeah. somebody that you go to a festival and enjoy Fred Penner in the gospel section. Yes. Or when he's, you know, performing for an audience of all ages, you know, his playing is fine. I mean, yeah. he is just a top-class performer. Yep. But we've also seen it from other people. I, You know, when I go to the folk conferences, I love watching the children's performers because these are really talented individuals. The yep. fact that their audience, you know, may be a slightly different different demographic from what mm. we used to, 
doesn't really change it at all. No. And they're they're usually very good entertainers because they have to be to keep those kids <laughs> attention, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh and they're they're great. Uh, and Cheryl and Sam are, are are no exception. They're uh, they were brilliant live. And Sharon and Bram Lois passed away a few years ago and sadly and uh, Sharon and Bram have carried on and they're on just uh, finishing up a farewell tour. They're hanging up their spurs after all these years. Let's play that just now. This is Sharon, Lois, and Bram with the Unbirthday song from the 1988 album Happy Birthday. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio, a very special Folk Roots Radio with Paul Mills, and I'm Jan Hall. Statistics prove, prove that you've won birthday. Just one birthday every year. But there are 364. 65 in leap year. Unbirthdays. That is why we're gathered here to cheer. A very merry unbirthday to you. To you? A very merry unbirthday to you. Oh, to you. To someone, and I guess that you will do. A very merry unbirthday to you. Wait a minute, now it's my turn. Yeah, I got a verse. A very merry unbirthday to us. To us? Uh-huh. A very merry unbirthday to us. The three of us. If there are no objections, let it be unanimous. I agree. A very merry unbirthday to us. I have someone in mind. Someone I know singing. well. A very merry unbirthday to me. To you? To you? To the village there below And no one would ever know Oh, the snow was high again In the year of 1910 When I rode over Kelly's top from Lake Rador Or the mountain I had come Without rapier, without gun To fetch my father's order from the Saint Anne store As I purchased my supplies A pretty maiden caught my eye Her beauty shone upon me like the sun as my heart melted away, I heard somebody say, That is the daughter fair of you, McGowan. Well, she knew she caught my eye, and she smiled as she walked by, Saying, meet me when the stars come out tonight. 
On the high road I will wait by old Don Campbell's gate And we'll sing a song of love there in the moon moonlight If I could only fly If I could build a bridge I'd carry you, my love Across this barren ridge If there were just some way I'd pull a carriage through the snow Take you over Kelly's Mountain To the village there below And no one would ever know I knew McGowan was a man With a very heavy hand And his daughter was the meaning to his life All her suitors had come To the wrong end of his gun As long as he was living She'd be no man's wife But I met her neat the stars And I took her in my arms And she said, please take me with you when you go Beneath my father's cruel hand No longer I can stand I'll leave with you and he will never know If I could only fly If I could build a bridge I'd carry you, my love Across this barren ridge If there were just some way I'd pull a carriage through the snow Take you over Kelly's Mountain To the village there below And no one would ever know Gunshot broke the still And I felt the pain burn deep within my side She said, my God, we have to run My father has a gun And he'll never let you take me as your bride In my pain I slipped and fell And it wasn't hard to tell That McGowan cursed my soul not far behind I pulled her sobbing to my breast Saying, here I've come to rest But there's something that I wish before I'm dying If you could only fly If you could build a bridge You'd carry me, my love Across this barren ridge Please tell my father why You had to bury me in the snow Near the top of Kelly's Mountain Where the winds forever blow Or no one will ever know Kelly's Mountain, where the winds forever blow, or no one will ever know. That's J.P. Cormier with Kelly's Mountain from his second album, Another Morning, another album that was produced by Paul Mills, our special guest on Folk Roots Radio today. He's joining us in the studio. Hi, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of that was was amazing i i just love that i mean it's i find myself almost giddy just listening to uh, it 
Well, JP's an amazing player. I should say that album actually was co-produced by myself and Bill Garrett. And uh, we recorded it in Cape Breton at a studio called Lake Wind Sound. It was, it's a beautiful place to uh, to work. And JP was, uh, we were actually, Bill and I and Grit Laskin and Ken Whiteley were forming uh, this new record label called Borealis. And we were on the, the hunt for uh, artists. And JP came to our attention, so he was one of the first artists that Borealis signed. And Bill and I, I decided to produce it, and JP agreed. So it was a, it was just a, it was a pleasure to work with JP, an amazing player and singer and songwriter. And uh, on that on that cut, he's playing that lickety split guitar and uh, banjo, as well. And uh, yeah, that album is one of my faves. And he spent a lot of time down in the U.S. I think in his early days, right? Didn't he go yeah. down there when he was pretty young? When he was a teenager, he was born and raised actually in London, Ontario. Uh, it was not a happy childhood uh he had he he says he used to lock himself in his room and learn how to play the guitar to get away from the yelling and screaming that was going on in his house anyway but as a teenager he ended up going down south and he ended up actually on the grand old opry stage played there on several occasions and he had played a lot of sessions down there as well yes he he did yeah yeah. Which which you can tell. I mean, as, oh, a, yeah. as a musician, as certainly a virtuoso. There's absolutely no, no doubt about that. Also a great fiddler. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Another one of those people that is identified with the Maritimes, and you don't realize he was actually born in Ontario. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We're going to go back to the music with another fiddler, April Virch, mm-hmm. Ottawa Valley Fiddling. Tell us a little bit about working with April. Well, April... Uh, uh, I met her, uh, she was playing with uh, a band out of Vancouver at the time when I met her and was talking about doing this, her first solo album and uh, asked if I would uh, work with her. So I agreed. It took me about a nanosecond to decide on that one. And she came to my home studio in Toronto and uh, and we did this uh, album together. She's a lovely, lovely person and a, an incredible fiddler. And she's still out there touring with a, a great band and, and very active. So it's uh, it was a lot of fun to work with her. And actually, my wife Bev came up with the title for this album, which is brilliant, I should say, Virtuosity. <laughs> it, is, it is a perfect title for an album. There's yeah. absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah. Tell us about the track we're going to listen to. Uh, this was uh, a track that she wrote for, um, I think it was her sister and her sister's husband. And it's kind of a tribute to them. It's her original composition. An incredibly talented performer. This is April Virch with the Thomas Reel from her album Virtuosity, which came out in 2001 and I think was on Rounder Records. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Borealis uh, tried to woo her. We, we tried to get her to sign, but uh, Rounder Records ended up, I guess, making a better offer. <laughs> and you're listening to Folk Roots Radio with Paul Mills in the studio. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
There are fancy stitches in the hills and ditches For the hand and for the machine Blanket and running, plain and stunning Twelve to the inch for the king But to pay my dues The one I often use When my piece is out of kilter It's not hard to do It's good for you The savior of the quilter When you see Rip it, rip. Don't take it to the tip, do the frog stitch. When the piece won't fit, do the frog stitch. You cut it wrong, it slipped, do the frog stitch. Fix it as you go, or have another UFO. Can't put it in the show, do the frog stitch. Cat in your lap, feed dogs down. Screen yourself, horse with another tuck found. A First you gotta get it by the quilt police Wrong sides together, do the frog stitch Trying to be too clever, do the frog stitch Your points are chopped, your neighbor quilted this block Your design is a flop, do the frog stitch Another tuck found A birthday quilt for your niece But first you gotta get it by the quilt police When your seams don't match, do the frog stitch When they don't lie flat, do the frog stitch It only hurts a bit when you rip it, rip it, rip Don't take it to the tip, do the frog stitch It only hurts a bit when you rip it, rip it, rip it don't take it to the tip, do the frog stitch. That's Kathy Miller, the singing quilter, with the frog stitch from her 2002 album, A Quilter's Embrace. Paul Mills is a special guest in the studio, and I think you produced that album and three others. Yeah, we, uh, we did a total of four quilting albums with Kathy, out of a total of five that she made. Talk about a niche market. <laughs> but she was really successful at it. She ended up doing uh, these albums and taking her show on the road. She did quilting shows all over all over the world, really. She even did a quilting cruise once on a ship. And uh, she and her husband, John, would perform the material from these albums. And, uh, and then they'd also teach quilting classes. So she's a very good quilter as well. Was every song about quilting? Yeah. 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 There was... Uh, that one is, is fun because... Uh, if you make a mistake in quilting, you have to rip the stitches out, and so it's called the that's called the frog stitch because you rip it, rip it, rip it, <laughs> and uh, so the song's all about that. Yeah, but there's uh, there's some lovely songs about uh, the stories that quilts often tell and the, the kinds of people who are making quilts and for uh, for love of family and all that stuff, you know. So uh, there's quite a variety of material on those albums. 
So once you build a name as a producer, I mean, do you find that's a, a natural thing that people come up to you and say, hey, you know, I'd love to, I want to make another record, you know, mm -hmm. would you be willing to, to come in the studio with me? Is that how normally it would happen? Uh, that's the way it happened a lot, yeah. I was I was very gratified when people contacted me and, uh, and uh, asked if I would work with them. Most of the time I would say yes, you know, but I, it's important that I feel an affinity for the music. It would not be uh, right or honest of me to be working with somebody whose music I, I didn't like or whose uh, message I didn't believe or, you know, things of that nature. Fortunately, most of the people who came to me had music that I could relate to, and we ended up working well together. What was the most unusual project you got involved in? You know, bearing in mind we just talked about quilting albums. <laughs> what was the most unusual? I think that might qualify as one of the most unusual because it was a it was an area that uh, that I didn't uh, know anything about, but I learned a lot about it in the process of making the album. So yeah, no, I can't think of other. Uh, I can't really. Nothing comes to mind. It says here's a. A strange situation or whatever. When you got involved with Borealis Records, you were mm. one of the founders with Grit Laskin and Bill Garrett. And Ken Whiteley. And Ken Whiteley. Mm. And did you find that, you know, they, they have a great reputation. I certainly, I love them because I know that whenever they send me an album, it's something that I definitely need to, mm. to listen to. And, and quite frankly, I feel like I get buried in music week after week now mm -hmm. but you have people at borealis that you know that you need to listen to it their packaging is fabulous mm -hmm. you know that they've you know got some top-notch musicians involved and some great production yes uh, it must have been fun for you to be involved in those days it was great um now ken and i only uh, were with the company for a couple of years and i started to get i guess ken too started to get so busy with our production work that we didn't really have the time to devote uh, time that we, we should have devoted. So Bill and Grit, bless their hearts, have carried it on ever since. And they have fabulous criteria, you know, that they, when they sign an artist, uh, it has to be of a certain caliber or they don't get signed. So it's, they've, they've kept the torch going. Yeah. Let's head back to the music with some Ron Negrini. Um, tell us a little bit about working with Ron. Ron and I actually uh, got to know each other. We, we've known each other for years, but we were at a, a, con a music conference called NERFA, which is in upstate New York. And uh, we were both there and we got talking and got to know each other. And uh, we ended up talking about uh, record production and he was thinking of doing another album and ended up asking me if I would work with him. And I just jumped at it because I love Ron's voice. I love his songwriting. I love his musicianship. Um, it's great. So yeah, we got together and, and uh, did this album, and it's called Songs from Turtle Island. I picked this song because it's the opening song on the on the album, and it's one of my favorites. It's called Bed of Roses. I think Ron's had an interesting career because he seems to be one of those people that um, sort of dips in and out of, of music, doesn't he? I guess so. Um, interesting guy. He actually had a hit record, I think, back in the 70s called I'm Easy. And if people heard it who were alive then, they might... You might uh, recognize it. So he had a, a kind of a, a major label career for a while, and and then he drifted away from that and started doing records on his own. And he's still out there performing, although not as much as he used to. Yeah, let's listen to that just now. This is Ron Negrini with Bed of Roses from his 2002 album, Song from Turtle Island, produced by Paul Mills. You're listening to a very special Folk Roots radio.
and I'm Jan Hall. Gonna lie in a bed of roses Gonna get hurt Gonna cry on a roadside shoulder Wash away the dirt I'm gonna ride on a steel rail ribbon Round the bend of the earth I'm gonna pay with the change of heart Cause that's what it's worth That's what it's worth I'm gonna stand in the eye of a hurricane I'm gonna be still Walk down another dark back alley You know I will I'm gonna dance with the chance I take I'm gonna lose my shirt I'm gonna pray for a change of heart that's what it's worth hey, hey. That's what it's worth And the word is out That love is gone a quarter and a jukebox played a song for you kissed you by the pinball king listen to Dal Shannon sing and I had all his records he was my favorite then and that's all gone it won't come back again that's all gone it won't come back again I woke and I put on my father's shoes I 
Stood out in the front yard like he used to do Stepped across the morning sand The skyline only showed a sign of rain And mine would be the only footprints that remained That's all gone, it won't come back again That's all gone, it won't come back again there was something that I meant to say yeah. But too many words got in the way Yeah, yeah And I dreamed it was 1962 I lit a fire on a beach I lay in the sand with you And sang songs till the rain would come Straight across the fields we'd run You wrapped a sweater around my first guitar I walked you home It's all gone, it won't come back again That's all gone, it won't come back again There was something that I meant to say Too many words got in the way I dreamed it was 1962 Dropped a quarter and a jukebox Played a song for you Kissed you by the pinball king Listen under Dale Shannon sing and I had all his records He was my favorite then Him and Brian Wilson And that's all gone It won't come back again That's all gone It won't come back again That's Ron Hines with the song 1962, one of his classic songs from the album Get Back Change, which was produced by Paul Mills in 2003. Paul Mills, our special guest in the studio today. Mm. How many albums did you record with Ron? Uh, we did three altogether. I actually met Ron back in the early 70s when I was producing for CBC. Back then we did uh, what were called broadcast recordings, and I did one with Ron. And apparently I was the first producer that he ever worked with uh, in that context. So many years later, when we uh, met up again, uh, he asked if I'd be willing to work with him on this album. And, uh, and it took me a nanosecond to decide, and, and we ended up doing this album together. And We had a great time. It was interesting. Um, he came to my studio in Toronto. He's living in Newfoundland, of course. He came to my studio, uh, and we did pre-production work and all of that. And then, and then we did... Uh, we did his tracks, guitar and vocal, and then we brought in uh, drums and bass. And then there was, of course, many more things to go on. We were going to be adding some keyboards and steel and fiddle and all this stuff. And Ron said to me, uh, after the drum and bass session, he turned to me and says, well, see, I'm heading home. I said, what? He says, yeah, I'm heading home. Uh, I said, you don't want me around during overdose. So. Well, uh, you always work with artists, Ron. I, you know, I want you here. Nope, nope, I'm going home. See ya. And he walks out. Well, <laughs> so I, I go on and I continue with the overdub sessions and uh, 
really nervous because, you know, I always like to have the artist there say, oh, it sounds good or not. Could we, you know, change, have that input? So anyway, I finished it all up, did rough mixes, sent them off to run. And then the phone rang one day and I was waiting for the worst, you know. Hi, Paul, it's Ron. Hi, Ron. So what do you think? He says, I love it all. <laughs> I said, great. I, I said, you even like the ukulele track? He says, what bloody ukulele track? <laughs> I snuck in a ukulele on a song called Good Dog is Lost. Oh, uh, oh <laughs> right. Fabulous song. Yeah. Uh, and uh, ironically, it's the song, uh, it's the title song from a, a fabulous tribute album to Ron Hines done by Ken Tizard. You had Ken on your show recently. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that album, but I, I, I mean, and Ken's version is great. Yeah. But Ron's is still something else. I mean, it, every time I listen to that song, I mean, it's like, I don't know, I get goosebumps on my goosebumps. Yeah. There's something about the way Ron sings anyway, because he has that almost like a, it's like a tremolo thing going on. Or yeah, something. yeah. Great singer. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So it was great to work with him. But he, he was, uh, at the time, I didn't know this, but at the time he was very heavily into drugs. He was uh, a crack co cocaine addict. And he was very high-functioning. You wouldn't know that he was a, a druggie. And uh, I think that was the reason he didn't want to be around during the overdubs, because he, he thought that he would just end up being a nuisance. And he probably would have been. You know, he later, he later uh, went through rehab and, and got clean. We did our second album together, which was just called Ron Hines. Uh, and he did that without being on drugs. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, very sad when he left us. Well, since you bring up the subject of A Good Dog is Lost, why don't we play that just now? But tell us a little bit more about it. Well, it was, uh, it was written after his, uh, his little daughter, I think she was five years old at the time, came home. And uh, their neighbor's dog had run away. So she went up to him, Ron, and said, Daddy, a good dog is lost. And <laughs> so he said, there's a song. And so he ended up writing the song. And in the album liner notes, he gives credit to his daughter. But it, it was based on the true story because they actually did do signs with crayons and posted them all around the neighborhood and put them on people's windshields and all this stuff. And, and the sign said, a good dog is lost. It is a fabulous song. Goosebumps on top of you, Goosebumps. This is Ron Hines with A Good Dog Is Lost from the album Get Back Change. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio, and I'm Jan Hall. Good dog is lost Set a sign above the counter at the corner store With an address and a phone to call Still in all it said, just a little bit more it said Hey there, stranger, well I can, I can hardly be Someone that I love that much is run away from me And if the finder could only return to me at any cost For a good dog is lost Somewhere out there tonight upon a darkened street Running breathless with a wild beating heart In all directions on four tiny feet calling Hey there stranger, well I can, I can hardly be 
Someone that I love that much Has forgotten about me Look at all these people Tucked away in their houses And they're watching Reruns of Who's the Boss Well a good dog is lost And a tired clerk at the counter says Every day in tiny ways we disappear On a night like this It's better him than me out there But a good dog is lost Set a flyer beneath the windshield wiper of my car So I stashed it in my groceries Caught this expression in my rearview mirror It said, hey there stranger Well I can, I can hardly believe That a picture of a puppy drawn with a crayon Get to a guy like me Guess I just go out and drive around I know I'll never sleep But I'll just turn and toss For a good dog is lost Good dog is The good dog is Never slept alone 
on the space beside me now Doesn't feel like it should But I close my eyes and I'm holding you Cause don't you see I know every inch of you After 55 years, my love That's Irish Mythen with the song 55 Years from her 2007 album Sweet Necessity. And that was an album produced by Paul Mills, our special guest on Folk Roots Radio mm. today. That was her first album or her first full-length album, full, right, Paul? Yeah, first full-length album. Um, it's interesting how we ended up working together. Uh, I did an album with a, a fellow uh, from the East Coast named Jim Hanlon, songwriter from Canso. He worked in a fish processing plant in the Maritimes until the, the uh, that industry went belly up. So he moved to Bahrain, and he's still there, actually. He works in the fish uh, fish plant industry there. And he met Irish over there. Irish was living at home with her parents, who were also working in the fish industry in Bahrain, all originally from Ireland. And uh, he got to know Irish a little bit, and he contacted me one day and said, there's this young woman here who's an amazing singer, and would you be willing to work with her? And so I listened to some demos, and I said, sure. So her, her parents financed it. She flew over to Canada and came to my studio, and we did a, a demo. Uh, I think it was a four or five song recording, which she put out. She was playing the uh, Stan Rogers Folk Festival that summer, and I encouraged her to put this out and and sell it at the festival. Well, she made 50 copies, and they were sold within 10 minutes of her first appearance. Anyway, uh, a year later, uh, uh, we decided that it's time to do a full-length album, and so she came back to the studio, and and this album was the result. Was she planning to live in Canada at that time? Because I know she's lived all over the world mm -hmm. because of, uh, you know, her 
uh, parents, I think her father was based in a lot of different places yep. uh, over time. I, I can't remember exactly when she moved to Canada, but it was around that time that she decided. And she met someone. Uh, I don't think it's her current partner, but uh, anyway, this person lived in um, in uh, New yep. Brunswick. A truly remarkable performer. And we were talking during the song with the, the fact that she's been a big hit in London, Ontario, mm-hmm. at, at Home County. And you're actually pretty involved at the, the festival, the Home County uh, Folk Festival. Yeah, I'm chair of the board uh, for the Home County Folk League, as the organization is called. And it's keeping me pretty busy. <laughs> but I love it. I, I, I love what uh, we do. I lo- the festival is uh, magical. I, I love the Home County Festival every summer. And we've started to do more things year-round as well. We're doing concerts and workshops year-round. And London has such a great music scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really does. It does. There's uh, there's always something, uh, particularly in our kind of music, there's a lot going on in London. The Aeolian Hall, uh, we were just there seeing the Ennis Sisters a couple of days ago. Bev and I go there a lot. There's uh, Ch- the Cuckoo's Nest Folk Club at Chaucer's uh, once or twice a month. There's always somebody there that we like to see. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great town. And of course, they have the Junos coming, coming in up 2019. In That's yeah. right. It's yeah. going to be pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, it, it, in some ways, I think London is a city that doesn't always get its due as far as its music scene mm. is concerned. One of the things I've been really impressed about is the fact that they have a music office that I think is is supported by the city, which it I is. find is really... I mean, I, I assume Toronto has one. I actually don't know that, but I'm really, I've been impressed with the way that... London has an office that supports music generally. They go to the folk conference and they'll yep. they'll put on showcasing. For there was artists. a at the uh, Folk Music Ontario conference yeah. just recently. You were there. They had a showcase room. Yeah, that was actually the second year they'd done that, which yeah. was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Don't uh, we applaud them? Yeah, we're gonna head back to the music with Shelley Posen. Mm. An interesting album, songs. From a Jewish Life, Menorah. Yep. Uh, tell us a little bit about producing this one. Well, uh, your listeners may be familiar with Shelley through his work with The Finest Kind, uh, it's, which was a vocal trio, wonderful group. But I've known Shelley since university days, and he's a, he's a magical singer and songwriter. He's a very, very clever guy. And he's a Jewish guy, and he decided to do an album all about the Jewish culture. And so he wrote all these songs, some of them are hilariously funny. Others are, are heart-moving, but all from a Jewish perspective. And uh, uh, it was a lot of fun to work on this album. He, he actually asked me to work with him because he knew that I had produced a lot of different kinds of music, aside from just pure folk, that I had some experience with jazz and with arranging for strings and things of that nature. And he wanted that kind of variety on the album. So uh, we, ended, we ended up doing two Jewish albums together. This was the first one. And then there was another one um, a couple of years later. But uh, this particular song is, is, is a lot of fun because it's, uh, in the liner notes, he says it, it was born of the uh, curious bit of knowledge that Jewish people seem to love Chinese food. And there's a certain Jewish ceremony which requires a kind of a, a quorum. There have to be at least 10 Jewish men at this ceremony for it to be validated. They're called a minion, you know. And if, there's, and if they're a man or two short of a minion, then the rabbi goes to the nearest Chinese restaurant where he'll sh- be sure and find some more Jewish guys to bring in. So <laughs> that's basically what the song's about. 
And this song is called Dim Sum, which is yes. <laughs> uh, pretty fun. Shelley Posen with Dim Sum from the album Menorah, Songs from a Jewish Life. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio with Paul Mills, and I'm Jan Hall. I was in a Chinese restaurant on a wintry afternoon. The dim sum girls were going around, calling out the dim sum tune. I was just about to choose a dish and pour myself some tea. When a hustle came in, looked around, and he walked right up to me. He said, I know you're Jewish, I see the kugel in your face. And I know you're wondering what a Jew like me is doing in this place. Well, I'm not here to give you grief about what you do or how. I've just come to give you a chance to perform a little mitzvah now. And I don't care what kind of Jew you are, the kind of Jew you are is fine with me. If your mom was Jewish, then you're up to par. You're as echt as I need you to be. You may eat trafe and chazerai, but that doesn't mean you don't qualify. A Jew's a Jew, no one can deny. You get a Torah-clad warranty. There's a small base midrash down the street where we're reading the Gemara through. And when time for mincha rolls around, we're often short a man or two. To complete our minion, I always go where there'll be Jews to spare. That's any good Chinese restaurant, I know I'll find a lunchman there. And I don't care what kind of Jew you are, the kind of Jew you are is fine with me. And now's your chance to be a Jewish star, cause if a minion is a lock, then you are a key. And I don't care on what you feed or the kind of Jewish life you lead. I'm a Jew in need of a Jew indeed, and you will suit me to a tea. Now a mitzvah is a mission that a Jew cannot refuse. And you're not a mensch if you stand by and don't help your fellow Jews. So I got up, put on my coat without delay or fuss When some guys at a nearby table said If you're going to dove and wait for us And I don't care what kind of Jew you are The kind of Jew you are is fine with me Even if you haven't had a bar You're a leaf on the family tree You may only go to shul on Yom Kippur Or lead the life of a goy gamur But with Jews there's no such thing as pure So buddy, you're the Jew for You may not think it's very cool But the genes in your particular pool are saying Would it be so bad if you went to shul? And buddy, that's a Jew too Shmulek, that's a Jew too Yangle, that's a Jew to me I built a boat. 
boat with fear and shattered nerve. I'm building a boat, I'm building her for two. The hardest part was starting, I don't know when I'll be through. That's Laura Smith with the song I Built a Boat from her 2013 album Everything is Moving, another album produced by Paul Mills, who's our special guest in the studio at Folk Roots Radio today. After 45 years and more than 200 albums, I was going to say you you hanging up your spurs, but I don't know what what a, what a producer's hang up. <laughs> Leads? I don't I guess, know. Yeah. Didn't that Laura Smith song just melt your heart? Absolutely beautiful. Oh. Absolutely beautiful. And that was her kind of comeback album, wasn't it? Yeah, she was at a commission for about 16 years. She had a very bad accident falling off a horse. When she was ready to record again, I was so pleased that she came to me and we ended up doing this album together. It's one of my favorite albums. She's uh, she's an amazing singer and songwriter. And I, what I like to say about Laura Smith is that when she delivers a song, she leaves nothing behind. It's all there, you know, every, uh, from deep down inside her, it all comes out and you can hear it in that song. It's interesting to say that because, you know, we were talking during one of the songs about the, you know, the fact that you have decided that, you know, the time is right to, to maybe step away from Mm -hmm. active production. You know, if you decide to make another album, maybe you'll get involved in producing that. But I think a lot of the, you know, you kind of touched on this when you were talking about Laura Smith, but uh, it's the fact that, you know, there are great people out there who make beautiful music, fabulous songwriters. It must be wonderful to be asked to, to produce those people. It is. It's an honor. Yeah. And I'm humbled by it. You know, I'm, I've, you know, I admired, I admired Laura for years uh, as a singer and a songwriter. I actually knew her back in the early 70s when uh, I was in London and Smales Pace Coffee House was was going strong. She was uh, a waitress and a cook at the uh, coffee house. Uh, we knew her as Susie Smith back then, but uh, but so we got kind of got to know each other back then a little bit. And so coming together to make this album in 2012-13, it was a real kind of homecoming for me. It was, it was great to work with her. Can you talk about some of the changes you've seen in the the years? I mean, you've been involved in in music, and you know, as a working at the CBC, then um, 
mm-hmm. you know, as a producer, it seems to me like the the pace of change has sped up so much as technology is is infused into everything. Absolutely. Well, you know, back in the day, we used to make uh, we used to use this stuff called tape, and uh, uh, a big reel of two inch tape uh, held fifteen minutes of music, and uh, you were limited to sixteen or twenty four tracks, and that was it. Nowadays, it's all on your computer, and you you can have a million tracks if you want. Uh, so that is all changed hugely. Um, back in those early days, you had to have a lot of money to make an album because studios were expensive. Uh, nowadays, all you need is a computer and a microphone, and you, you can make an album. You know? So it's really, really changed. Also, back in the early days, uh, most albums were done with uh, major labels who had the big bucks, and uh, and they could finance, so you'd have to get signed by a label and all that. But as the technology became more accessible, people moved more to producing their own music on their own labels. And uh, the independent labels really started to uh, come to the fore during the 70s and 80s. So that's changed the landscape hugely. And now the big labels are all about history. Do you find that changes people's expectations when they you know, decide that they want to come in the studio with you? That The fact that I mean, like, do they come more prepared, perhaps, than they were before? You know, maybe they have some demos they've been working on themselves before they they join you? In some cases, that's true, yes. Uh, In some cases, no. some cases, uh, even as simple as the technology is becoming, they still are not involved in that and want to come to someone who actually knows how to do it. So it depends on the artist, you know. I always, when I'm working with artists, I always go through a a pretty extensive pre-production process. We sit down before we go into the studio and we talk about what songs we're going to record, what kind of arrangements, what kind of instrumentation. Uh, sometimes when we go through the songs, I might have a suggestion about, you know, it might sound good for the song to have a bridge or that melody is great, but it would be nice if you did a little twist there. So sometimes I've actually even gone to the extent of being a co-writer on some songs with artists. I tried that with Ron Hines, by the way, and he says, nope, these songs are finished. <laughs> yes, sir, Ron. And then, obviously, the fact that you are a very talented musician in your own right, you probably end up playing on a lot of the people that, that come in as well. Yeah, most of the albums I've produced, I end up playing something on them. Yeah. And uh, most of the albums I've produced, I try to get some ukulele in on at least one track. <laughs> I was wondering just to make sure that you were seeing how how much attention they were actually paying. I would imagine if it's <laughs> if it's your own music, you're going to pay lots of attention. Have the length of sessions changed with the way that the technologies come in? Are people spending less time with you in a studio compared to what they would have done in the? I was going to say the old days. No, in my experience, it's about the same. Uh, yeah. We spend as much time as we need to spend to make sure it's as good as it can be, and the technology really has no bearing on that. How often would you record live off the floor versus, you know, spending time to 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 build up a, well, a track? Well, my particular uh, method of working is largely building tracks. Um, I've, live off the floor, uh, I would I would use that if it was necessary. Like if there's a lot of tempo change and a lot of fluidity to the uh, to the song and the performance, then that would be live off the floor. But if there's a, a good strict tempo and so on, as I said. Earlier in the show, I like to I like to spend time making sure the vocals are as good as they can be. So doing vocals in an overdub situation works well, at least for me, and for most of the artists that I've worked with. 
We're almost getting up to date with some of the music we're playing today. Mm. The next track we're going to play is is out of this world, I think, because it's going to be Chris Hadfield and the Bare Naked Ladies together on a track that's entitled ISS, which could mean the International Space Station, but actually is the 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 full title would be is somebody singing. Tell us about this track. Well, uh, working with Chris, uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you the story. I did an album with his brother about uh, four years before but Dave, this. Dave Hadfield. Dave Hadfield. And Chris actually came in and sang some vocals on that album. So we got to know each other a little bit. And he was a huge Tanglefoot fan, a group that I was producing at the time. So uh, he came out to one of uh, a live recording that I was doing with Tanglefoot. So Chris and I got to know each other. And then a couple of years later, uh, I got a call from Joey Taylor, who was uh, somebody that I knew at the CBC. And Joey had had made uh, this guitar. He had it made by a, a builder out in Nova Scotia, which is uh, built from pieces of wood from all over Canada. There's even a, a piece of the canoe paddle that Pierre Trudeau used in that famous picture of him paddling the canoe. There's a piece off Bobby Orr's uh, uh, Stanley Cup ring in there in the inlay. Anyway, Joey asked me, he knew that I knew Chris, and he, we knew that Chris was going up to the space station. Uh, later that year. He said, do you think uh, I could get Chris to take the guitar up to the station with him? I said, well, I could ask. So I phoned Chris up and I said, well, what do you think? Uh, could you take this guitar up? He says, I could take it up, but it would never come back because, you know, it's the last time that the shuttle is going up and that's the last time they'd have room for such a thing. So I told Joey the bad news. And Anyway, in subsequent conversations, Chris and I got talking because uh, I knew that he played guitar and sang. And he said, you know, there is a guitar up there already. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, there's a Larivee up on the International Space Station. I said, wow. So you, you actually go up there and you can play? And he says, oh, yeah, and we can record too because we've got you know, a little Mac uh, computer and we can record. I said, so you could maybe even make an album while you're up there. He says, oh, yeah. He says, why don't we do that? So we agreed. And we did uh, some work prior to his uh, departure, uh, picking some songs and do, do, doing the pre-production thing. And then he went up. And uh, yeah, he, we were in correspondence by email and all this, and he would record tracks and send them down to me. And along the way, uh, I mentioned this project to a friend I knew at CBC who was head of music, Ann McKeegan. And she's, she's, I, I said, you know, would CBC be interested in getting involved in this project and uh, perhaps getting Chris and someone to write a song together, which CBC would commission? She said, absolutely. So we ended up getting Chris and Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies together, and they co-wrote this song. This is before Chris left for the station. They worked up the song, and uh, we ended up uh, with CBC saying, this would be a perfect song for the Music Monday program, which was a group uh, promoting music education in schools. So it was all set up. It would be the Music Monday song for 2013. So I had Ed Robertson recording the the track in his home studio with just a, him and a click track. I sent it up to Chris on the space station. Chris recorded his vocal and guitar up there, sent me the tracks back down to earth. And then I had the Bare Naked Ladies and a choir called the Wexford Gleeks in a CBC studio. And they recorded the song live straight to uh, tape with Chris's pre-recorded tracks from space. And it ended up being uh, made into a video. So that's the, the long story, but it was a lot of fun. 
Now, I think as far as the album was concerned, you ended up not being able to, to finish that work. No, right? Chris ended up signing with Warner Brothers and they had a producer in mind, so I didn't finish the tracks Yeah, with, uh, with Chris. But, uh, but you were involved in this song. This was the one song that got released. It was never released as a record. It was just released as a CBC video. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot, bit of a logistical nightmare, but we got through it. This is Chris Hadfield and the Bare Naked Ladies with his Somebody Singing. And you're listening to Folk Roots Radio with Paul Mills, and I'm Jan Hall. Wires turn the key and light the fire. We're leaving Earth today. This rocket's burning bright. We'll soon be out of sight and orbiting in space. Push back in my seat. Look out my window, there goes home That ball of shiny blue Houses everybody, anybody ever knew So sing your song, I'm listening Out where stars are listening, I can your voice is bouncing off the moon If you could see our nation From the International Space Station You know why I want to get back soon 18,000 miles an hour Fueled by science and solar power the oceans racing past At half a thousand tons Ninety minutes moon to sun A bullet can't go half this fast Floating from my seat Look out my window There goes home That brilliant ball of blue Is where I'm from and also where I'm going to So sing your song, I'm listening Out where stars are glistening I can hear your voices bouncing off the moon If you could see our nation from the International Space Station You know why I wanna get back soon All black and white just fades to gray Where the sun rises 16 times a day You can't make out borders from a Speed. 
pushed back in my seat Look out my window Here it comes home What once was fueled by fear Now has 15 nations orbiting together here So sing your song I'm listening out where stars are glistening, I can hear your voices bouncing off the moon. If you could see our nation from the International Space Station, you know why I want to get back soon. Or you know why I want to get back soon. Yeah, you know why I want to get back soon. You know why I want to get back soon. That's Chris Hatfield and the Bare Naked Ladies with ISS is somebody singing a single from 2013 produced by our guest in the Folk Roots Radio Studio today, Paul Mills. And Paul, the next act, I think it's a very special act. We're going to talk about the Lucky Sisters. Yes, indeed. Uh, only produced one album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alison Lupton with Rosemary Phelan and Tana Slimmon. You uh, had the privilege of producing the album Get Lucky. Tell us a little bit about this project. Well, interesting how it evolved. Uh, there's a fellow from Boston whose name is Terry Egan who uh, uh, puts on concerts to raise money to build healing gardens in hospitals. He puts on concerts a lot in, in Canada to raise this money. And he was in uh, Kitchener one time uh, putting on a concert, and Tannis Sloman, Rosemary Phelan, and Alison Lupton were all on the bill. And they got together and sang one song together. And Terry was smitten by the sound of these three gorgeous singers singing together. So I guess he went back home to Boston and started to think about it. And, and he called them up one time and said, would you guys be interested in making an album? And they said, sure. And he contacted me and he said, would you be interested in producing the album? And I said, sure. They had uh, started to call themselves the Lucky Sisters. And uh, when Terry asked me to produce, uh, I wrote the three women uh, an email saying, are you sure you want me to to work with you? Because, I mean, it's important that the artist be in agreement with the producer choice. And they all said yes. So we got together and and did this album. Now, the sad part of the story is that Rosemary at the time was terminally ill. Um, She was still able to perform and all that, but uh, she didn't have much much longer to be with us. So I I remember the first pre-production meeting, we talked about uh, doing her vocals as quickly as possible. She actually went into the studio with her husband, Jason LaProd, and did her vocals, and told me later that if it had been a week later, she would not have been able to do it. Anyway, the we got her vocals done. Uh, we added uh, Tannis and Allison in my studio, and Tannis also has a studio at her place in Guelph, and she did her tracks there with her hubby, Lewis. And uh, I put it all together in my studio, and we mixed it, and uh, I'm happy to say that Rosemary was actually able to hold the album in her hand. She actually designed the cover graphics and everything. 
So she was actually able to hear the finished product before she passed. This song here is um, a very special song on the album. It was actually written by Laura Smith, who we just heard a few minutes ago. And Rosemary sings the song. The songs in this album were chosen with the knowledge of what was going to be happening. And so the songs are all about a celebration of life and love and, and valuing relationships and all of that kind of thing. And this song, uh, every time I hear Rosemary sing this song, it just melts my heart. She had a beautiful voice. Indeed, Absolutely she did. Absolutely beautiful. Yep. And, you know, I mean, three, you know, if you were going to put three singers together to, for a project like this, you couldn't pick three better people than Alison Lupton, Rosemary Phelan, and Tanner Slimmon. Yep. I mean, not just because of the, the values that they, they bring into their lives, but gorgeous singers, and they harmonize beautifully, wonderfully. Yep. The Lucky Sisters. This is the Lucky Sisters on Folk Roots Radio with the song Safe Home from their 2015 album, Get Lucky. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio with Paul Mills in the studio, and I'm Jan Hall. Raise your love 
That's the Lucky Sisters with Safe Home from their fabulous 2015 album, So Lucky. It's the only album that they were able to produce because of the Mm -hmm. the sad passing of Rosemary Phelan, but Mm -hmm. it's an absolutely gorgeous album. And I guess from your point of view, Paul Mills, our special guest in the studio, uh, it must have been great to to have had the privilege to be involved in that project. It was a privilege. I was honored when Terry asked me to work with them, and, and I was honored when they agreed three incredibly talented women and i should mention by the way that that beautiful dobro solo on that last song was played by rosemary's husband jason yeah uh, you can you can hear his heart absolutely gorgeous it's been absolutely fabulous to have you join us in the studio i feel like we should do this again (laughs) we've got 200 albums so what we (laughs) think we've talked about 10 or 15 of them today we can do it again at a later date so you decided, you decided unless you make another album yourself, maybe you won't be producing anymore? Probably not. I mean, yeah. if something came along that really uh, made me sit up and, and uh, it was an opportunity, I don't know, I might, you know, but probably not. But Kelly Boy Stubbs and Paul Mills will be getting out and playing more both of music. Them. Yeah, both, both of them. Of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're doing, uh, I'm doing a, a, a Home Roots tour with Dave Bradstreet next fall. I've got uh, a couple of things coming up uh, this spring, which you'll hear about. And uh, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy performing a lot. I'm not quite the flashy guitar player I was back then. Uh, I've got older fingers now, but I can still rip off a tune or two. And playing with uh, your son Trevor, is that something you'll be doing more of too? Perhaps. We did a Home Roots tour last fall and that was a lot of fun to be on the road with Trevor. He's a great musician. And uh, we we made one album together, which ironically is the last album I produced. A nice way to to finish off, I think. And of course you're involved with Home County, which Mm -hmm. goes from strength to strength. It's it's a great organization. We have a wonderful board of directors. Uh, We have an army of uh, volunteers and coordinators that put this show on every summer that just makes my jaw drop at what these people can do. And it's a lot of fun. It's a privilege to be uh, in their ranks for sure. Well, you know, one of the things I love about it and the first time that I went when I was living in London is the fact that it, it is totally accessible. Yes. Because it's in Victoria Park, right in the center of London. Yep. And it's admission by donation. That's right. Which, which is great because the caliber of the musicians is not any less than you would expect if you headed to another festival. Well, we really, uh, we really enjoy the support of, uh, uh, of uh, all three levels of government. 
uh, giving us grants, and the uh, City of London, Province of Ontario, and the federal government all chip in, and that's greatly appreciated. Plus, we have a bevy of wonderful sponsors that that, that support us every year. So, and and people do make donations when they uh, come to the event. The thing that I like is that they can give what they can afford, and so that's part of the accessibility of our festival, and I love that. So, yeah, it, it all works out, and we're uh, keeping our heads above water, and uh, there'll be another great uh, festival this summer. No, that's great. So, uh, yeah, if you've not been to home county, you definitely need to yep. head to London. It's a fabulous city, as we've mentioned. It's got a great music scene, and they have an absolutely fabulous festival every summer. We only have one thing left to do, and that's... What's that? Well, I was going to say to pick... Normally, I say it's to pick the next song that we're <laughs> going to play. We've already decided what it's going to be, because it's going to be a Paul Mills song. Yes, you have decided, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> from the album The Other Side of the Glass, which came out in 2006. And I yeah. wanted to be very careful that I picked a song that you actually wrote. Yes. So not only do you play and you sing... Yeah but you actually wrote this as well. We're going to finish with With a Twist. Tell yeah. us about this one. Well, this came out of uh, my son Trevor used to run a, a songwriters series at uh, Hughes Room in Toronto. And what he did, it was a once a month gathering of songwriters. And what he did was issue a kind of a challenge every month. He would issue a subject for songs to be written to. And this one particular, uh, he always came up with a, with quirky ideas. It wasn't like write a love song or write a, a historical song. This particular month, the topic was with a twist. And so I immediately thought of martinis. <laughs> so, so I wrote this song uh, about this this guy who's just an ordinary guy. He's nothing fancy about him. He just wears baseball caps and goes to the local neighborhood bar. And, and, uh, uh, and But he has this one little piece of sophistication in his life. He enjoys drinking martinis with a twist. So that's the song. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you join us in the studio today. Likewise. Thank you, James. This is Paul Mills with a twist. Paul Mills with a twist from the album, The Other Side of the Glass. You're listening to Folk Roots Radio. And you're Jan Hall. And I'm Jan Hall. <laughs> and thanks again. Thank you, Jan. Friday night, Frankie's Bar, seedy side of town. That's me on the bar stool, baseball hat pulled down. My friends are drinking whiskey. But I think that's uncouth Cause I prefer a lemon peel Swimming in gin and vermouth Now I tend to get laconic When I'm offered gin and tonic Hold the tonic and vermouth I must insist Four to one would be so nice And stir it with some ice I like my martinis with a twist Now my life may lack pizzazz, style and all that jazz But I don't care at all who bats an eye Cause fancy ain't my style And I can raise a smile Just by sipping back on something cool and dry Now I'm the sort of fellow Whose life is kind of mellow Not the kind who goes out on the town There's not much that I'm in on High society or women But you know, it ain't often I feel down Now I might have better luck 
I was more seductive But I'm the sort that women just dismiss Sometimes I can get grumpy And look a little frumpy But I do like my martinis with a twist Just relaxes. I enjoy a martini with some lime. Now my life may seem too plain, and I may not be urbane, but haute couture just isn't on my list. No, I just want love and passion. I don't care if I'm in fashion, but I do like my martinis with a twist. So if you want to get to know me, there's just nothing that can throw me. But I do like my martinis with a twist. I insist, I like my martinis with a twist. 